Blog Talk Radio. live to the Red Zone Sports Report. My name is Chip Lake, your host for this evening. It is Tuesday, October 3rd. We are back to our regularly scheduled day of the week. Uh, the last two weeks we've been on on Wednesdays, uh, but we are back to Tuesdays, and we are going to be back on Tuesdays for the remainder of the year, for the remainder of the football season. And what a football season it is. It uh, seems like every year we run into the same uh, – uh, we run into the same dynamic week, week after week after week with, on both Saturdays and on Sundays when uh, so many intriguing storylines come out of this uh, um, come out of these games. Uh, this particularly this particular week, quite a bit of storylines coming out. We are going to start uh, in Tuscaloosa. We're going to start with the Alabama Crimson Tide. They start the season at five and zero. No surprises there, folks. No big news flash, news flash there. The Alabama Crimson Tide is 5-0 and undefeated to start the season. But kind of how they've gotten there has been a little unique even by Alabama standards. Um, they opened the season up with the defeat of the Florida State Seminoles, a team that we now know is, is really not that good, especially without DeAndre Francois, who actually got injured in that game. I think Alabama won that game 24-9, to 24-7. It was a lot closer game than that. Uh, but Alabama kind of uh, uh, spread it out, spread out the margin at the end. Then they go on to have routine wins over Fresno State, Colorado State. They didn't cover the spread in either one of those games, and you heard folks chattering, saying, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe uh, Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide are vulnerable this year. Uh, and then they, they played their last two games. Now, they've played their last two games not against um, powerhouses in the conference, per se, uh, but – they did beat a Vanderbilt team that was coming off of um, their first top 25 win in uh, quite some time against Kansas State. Um, uh, there was a player from Vanderbilt that was running his mouth a little bit before the game saying, kind of, we want Bama. It was a little bit of bulletin board material. Bama goes up to Nashville and drubs the Commodores 59 to nothing. And everybody assumed that was a bulletin board type game. Uh, then all of a sudden, Shea Patterson and the Old Miss Rebels come into Tuscaloosa this past weekend. And my, oh my, what a beatdown it was. I want to welcome to the show our college football guru, Kip Kiefer. Kip, over the last two weeks, the Alabama Crimson Tide has defeated two SEC opponents. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I give you this figure. By a total margin of 125 to 3. 125 to 3 over two games. As dominant as this Alabama Crimson Tide team has been for quite some time under Nick Saban, I don't know that I can remember a two-game stretch where they looked this perfect. I mean, is it possible that this could be the best Bama team? And I know we ask this question every year. 
is it possible that this could be the best Alabama team Nick Saban has had with the caveat that the expectations of what this team could do have been a little bit lower than they've been in the past? Kip, you you heard from everybody on the morning after show on WJOX on Birmingham. Give me your thoughts on this Crimson Tide team. Well, my first thought is if you had uh... – uh, in a two-game parlay, the combination of Vanderbilt and Ole Miss over the two weeks, and and you uh, plus 121 and a half, you lost. Uh, <laughs> but you would have gotten good odds on it. Perspective. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I would have taken that bet if uh, you know the combination of the two and getting 121 and a half. But um, that's right. I do think this is possibly the most explosive offense that they've had under Nick Saban. Um, only because of the Jalen Hurts um, factor where he's he's as dangerous a runner as they have. But then the one-two punch of Harris and Scarborough, who looks 100% again, uh, Calvin Ridley and Robert Foster, the receivers, uh, the offensive line is really gelled. I mean, this team offensively uh, really, really looks good. Defensively, I'm still a little skeptical. I don't think this is the greatest Alabama defense that, that's come down the pike. Uh, I think that's taken its toll of the uh, the number of NFL players that have gone the last couple of years, and they've had horrendous injury problems in the linebacker ranks, um, and and so that's a, that, that's a concern. Um, so as, as dominating as these two wins were, the fact that they were Vandy and Ole Miss, uh, who are both teams that um, uh, you, you would have expected to be far more competitive, but not exactly offensive juggernauts at this point, despite Shea Patterson. Uh, potential to be one of the great quarterbacks in the league uh, once he gets some time under his belt. Um, so I, I, I'm still kind of holding out, uh, declaring them overall one of the best Alabama teams. But I think certainly from an offensive standpoint, you can, you could start to uh, to make a pretty convincing argument in that direction. I, I don't know that I have, uh, and I think you're exactly right about maybe it not being one of the better. Uh, better defensive teams Alabama's ever had, but does it need to be one of the better defensive teams they've no. ever had? I mean, it, as as explosive as their offense is, probably not. But uh, you right. know, that was a nine o'clock Eastern time game this weekend, so uh, I was down on the plains uh, watching the Auburn Mississippi State game. We're going to pivot that in just a little bit, but I was able to get back to our tailgate and uh, and uh, and be able to tune in and watch all of that Old Miss Alabama game. And and I tell you, um, pretty scary. I mean, pretty scary yeah. that they're able to dominate um, two weeks in a row like they did. You just don't see that very often in college football. Let's kind of pivot to that game a little bit, Kip. On the complete other side of the spectrum is the Crimson Tide. You have the Mississippi State Bulldogs, who three weeks ago beat uh, – now we know, but we didn't know then um, – was an LSU team that they were seven-and-a-half-point underdogs at home to. They go on to beat – the uh, LSU Tigers 37 to seven, and then they go on the road and they lose to Georgia 31 to three. And then this past weekend, they absolutely looked terrible in losing to Auburn 49 to 10. Um, uh, completely opposite end of the spectrum as Alabama, who over the last two weeks has outscored their opponents 125 to three. Mississippi State, on the other hand, over the last two weeks has been outscored 80 to 13. 80 to 13, Kip. I got to tell you, that Mississippi State team 
after a three-week stretch like they have, they looked really gassed on Saturday at Auburn. What are your thoughts on uh, what are your thoughts on Mississippi State? And give me your thoughts on Auburn as well. Well, if if Mississippi State was a stock and you bought and you bought in after the LSU game, uh, you have suffered some severe losses because uh, this disastrous two week road trip uh, couldn't have gone any worse. And Dan Mullen's team has been exposed as not a contender. You don't hear much talk uh, this week, Chip, about Mississippi State perhaps being the second best team in the conference. Uh, no, you don't, so do you? That, that discussion no, that's has gone. subsided. That's right. Uh, LSU was so overhyped. Uh, we can spend the entire show talking about my theories there. But basically, um, they they removed Les Miles last year because of his offensive uh lack of innovation. They plugged in at Coach O, uh, who, you know, I'm sorry, Coach O may be a great guy and a perfect cultural fit, but uh, his his track record as a head coach uh, in the one job that he actually was given as old Mrs. Coach was woeful. Uh, in an interim role at USC, he had some success, but, um, you know, there really wasn't any other changes. And, and uh, so Mississippi State's win against them was a little bit uh, – uh, tainted, and then it really was exacerbated by LSU. Can you believe Troy goes down there in Death Valley oh. on a Saturday night and takes down the Tigers? There is uh, there is great strife in uh, in Tigerland right now. But to get back to the Auburn game. I thought Auburn was primed, and I said it on the show last week. I thought Auburn, I, I, you know, I said I think you'll get, you're going to get Auburn's very best. I think they're, uh, um, you know, even even though Missouri has turned out to be uh, just the absolute train wreck of the conference and maybe the entire nation, um, but that that was exactly the tonic that Auburn needed to kind of get their swagger back and go up and really really dominate a team on the road. And I knew coming home they were going to play really well. I didn't know for sure after the Georgia game if Mississippi State would have anything left, but it was pretty apparent, like you said right away, that uh, they were overmatched. Auburn was great on both sides of the ball. And it's pretty clear to me now, uh, unless something earth-shattering happens, in the SEC there are three big-time teams. There's one on a complete different level. And then Georgia and Auburn uh, are in the, are in the uh, supreme group, and all the rest are way behind, in my opinion. I, I saw uh, – Feinbaum actually rated Florida on that same plateau with Georgia and Auburn, but I think that's really bogus if you look at the, uh, the yeah, games they play. Yeah, Feinbaum, uh, yeah, that's ridiculous. There's no way in hell. Yeah, look at uh, look at look at uh, look at Florida this week. I mean, they had to fight hard to uh, subdue Vanderbilt, 38 to 24 in the swamp. Uh, the Florida defense is not a Florida defense. They're young and make mistakes. Uh, the same team that Alabama went to Nashville and beat them at home, 59 to nothing put up 24 against Florida in Gainesville. So that should give you some perspective that there is a very wide gap between uh, Alabama and everybody else, which we already knew. But I think Auburn and Georgia have distinguished themselves as the two other legitimate teams in the league, and the rest are all suspect. I mean, really. Um, Kip, I couldn't. I was just going to bring that up. I, uh, you know, in in my lifetime, um, Certainly in my lifetime, uh, as somebody who has been paying very close attention to college football, um, you know, look, the, the SEC was the dominant conference for so long, possibly up to 12 to 14 years. I remember having discussions with friends of mine when I lived in Washington, D.C. in the late 90s, 
who were Michigan State alums and Purdue alums. They were big, you know, Big Ten guys. And there was an honest discussion at that time as to, uh, you know, what conference was the best conference in college football. And then when we got into the early 2000s, we really couldn't have that argument anymore. It was pretty apparent who the number one team was in, um, excuse me, the number one conference was in college football. But I got to tell you, I think uh, this is as down of a year from a depth perspective as I think the SEC has had in a long time. That being said, it very well could be that they have two of the top five teams in the country. We're going to talk about Georgia in a minute, as much as it pains me to to possibly <laughs> introduce that, 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 that theory of Georgia May being top five. I'm going to explain to you in just a minute why I think that's the case. But, you know, I'm just uh, – I'm an Auburn guy, bleed orange and blue. Um, you know, I'm just not ready yet to uh, – you know, uh, I'm pleased at the development that Jared Stidham has had as our quarterback. Really love our defense. I think our defense can keep us in every game. You know, I'm just not a believer yet that we can, um, you know, that we can really make a deep run into this conference. But, you know, i got to tell you, once you get past, uh, you know, I, I think Georgia and Alabama are clearly the, uh, you know, the cream of the crop right now in the conference, probably followed by Auburn and then everybody else. Um, you know, uh, I don't put Florida in there. I've seen Florida, Florida play a couple games, Kip. I'm not all that impressed with them. I mean, uh, Texas A&M is quietly 4-1, and one, but I don't think they're a very good football team at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Alabama's a 26-point favorite this weekend, uh, <laughs> and I believe that game is at Kyle Field in, uh, in College is. Station. I mean, it's just insane for a road game. I mean, uh, the conference has taken a beating. Um, that being said, let's kind of pivot a little bit and let's talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. Let's talk about what they've been able to do so far. I mean, you know, they go in. We talked a little bit last week. I think I was joking with you at the winners and losers segment at the end of the podcast uh, last week about, uh, you know, um, you jinxing the Georgia Bulldogs and uh, possibly having, uh, you know, Butch Jones as, uh, you know, the winner this week. Uh, boy, did that not work out. Here's what here's what scares me, Kip, about this Georgia Bulldog team. They roll into Knoxville, and they beat a Tennessee Volunteers team who desperately needed a strong showing, desperately needed a win. Um, you know, uh, it's clear now they're not really playing for their coach. He kind of went out on a, a pretty big limb during his weekly press conference last week, Kip, and took a shot at the media for how they were covering the program and how they were covering the job security of the head coach. Um, that's not how you respond if you're looking to play for your coach. Georgia won 41 to nothing. Kip, here's what concerned me the most. Um, and I, we said this last week. You know, all this discussion about Jake Fromm and Jacob Eason, it matters not. Let me read you Jake Fromm's numbers. And if I would have told you last week that Jake Fromm was going to start the game and he was going to be 7 of 15 for 84 yards with a touchdown and an interception, I don't know that you would have taken the Bulldogs minus 40, would you, Kip? No. No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's insane. You've got that, that, five people on that football team who can carry the rock. 
and you've got one of the better defenses in the country, certainly a top ten defense in the country. And and you know you've got Nick Chubb, you can hand the ball to. You've got Sony Michelle, Elijah Holyfield went for seven carries and fifty one yards uh, mm-hmm. this week. It was just DeAndre Swift ran the ball for thirty four yards on six carries. I mean, this team is so deep at running back. And they are so complete on defense. I worry about this Georgia Bulldog team. The last thing I want to do in the month of October, November, and December is live in the Atlanta media market and have to listen every day to Atlanta Sports Talk Radio and go on social media and hear all of my Bulldog friends who are getting out their frustrations waiting since 1980 to play for a national title. Now, Kip, I'm not ready to put Georgia in the national title game. But I've also seen this Bulldog team go six and five many times and hear Bulldog faithful talk about how close they were to being undefeated. Um, Kip, I I worry that this Georgia Bulldog team uh, could be for real. Give me some comfort, Kip, that I'm wrong. Well, I, 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 I'm going to say this. Um, after the Notre Dame victory, um, I hailed it as a, as a program transition kind of a win, and I got basically kind of shouted down by a lot of folks. And, and uh, with the, the aforementioned Paul Feinbaum uh, kind of said, well, you know, Notre Dame's come off a four and eight year. What a, you know, how is that a big accomplishment to win up there? It wasn't, and, and, and the jury was still out certainly on Notre Dame. Of course, they've come back and won on the road at Michigan State, and and uh, and look like they're uh, they're they're really on the on the right path themselves. So with that being said, I thought that game was big because not so much that uh, that they beat Notre Dame, but just the way uh, that they went on the road and handled their business and kept their defensive intensity the whole time and did what was necessary to get a road win in a very iconic and difficult place that that you would think was going to be a, a stumbling block. But uh, so I, I really felt like that sent a message because I, I said the, on the show that uh, same week that, uh, you know, God bless Mark Rick, what a quality human being, and that's always the disclaimer. But under Mark Rick, Georgia never wins that game at Notre Dame. Not in 100 years that wouldn't no. have happened no. um, because they just didn't keep the same focus and intensity throughout the game. And, and uh, it, it, it really signaled to me this is a different Georgia team and just the way they've handled their business since, uh, uh, just dispatching Mississippi State in, uh, in, with, with coming off their big win, which I didn't find surprising. I thought it was an awful lot for Mississippi State to be asked to go to Athens and, uh, and repeat the performance of the week before. But the Tennessee game is such a departure because that has been a waterloo for more good Georgia teams over the years than any place else in Knoxville. And to yeah, get off really to a – they had an interception right off the bat. Uh, I thought the play calling was really conservative. They settled for a field goal. Uh, you just kind of had the feeling for the first half of the first quarter that uh, this is going to be the same old thing. They're going to let this team hang around and find a way to lose. And it's, it's psychology that has been built up over, you know, 40 years or 35 years of frustration. But um, but then you started to get an indication because you watch this defense and Chip, they are relentless. This is a this is a defense that uh, in, unbelievable props to Kirby Smart and Mel Tucker. They have built an Alabama defense in two years. There, it's it's incredible. Yeah. 
the depth of that defense is, is, a, is amazing. They're playing seven or eight different defensive backs, and they all seem to be interchangeable parts. The linebackers are phenomenal. Bellamy and Lorenzo Carter on the outside, and Roquan Smith, the middle linebacker, is just a tackling machine. He's in on every play. The uh, young defensive front has been tremendous, and once again, they're, they're, they're deep. Um, this defense is the real deal. Uh, not taking any worse from Mr. Holyfield on the offensive side of the ball, but um, Georgia, I think, is a legitimate contender, and for them to go up there and shut out Tennessee and just embarrass them, uh, like you said, when Tennessee was in the ultimate uh, last stand kind of mode, uh, well, the last stand was pretty pathetic, Um uh, they 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 held up worse than uh, than George Custer at Little Bighorn. They got absolutely destroyed. And uh, gosh, what what's left now for that Tennessee program? I mean, how do they press on? Uh, what a what a disaster in Knoxville. But I think Georgia's a legitimate contender. I don't think they're on Alabama's level, but uh, right now, arguably, um, they're as good as anybody else in the discussion because that defense makes them legitimate. They definitely make them legitimate. And Kip, I tell you, I don't mean to get ahead of myself, but I'm looking at. Let's go back, kind of talk about this Auburn team because I, I think it's. Uh, I think Georgia, when they come into Auburn on Saturday, November 11th, oh, uh, I think it would be it would be a surprise if they're not undefeated. Um, uh, you look at the the schedule that they have. I, I think this Georgia team is going to be undefeated. The question is going to be, what is Auburn going to be? Now we play Ole Miss at home this weekend. Um, I, I don't think Ole Miss is as bad as they looked on Saturday. Uh, hopefully, we should win that football game. Uh, it is Definitely. a noon game. That's cruel to do to the Ole Miss Rebels after playing a 9 p.m. game um, on the road at Alabama, yeah. uh, getting beat 66-3 uh, to 3 and then having to play noon uh, Eastern time, 11 o'clock Central time the next game. But then, then Auburn goes out. Auburn has three road games in a row, and they have a, a bye week sandwiched in between the second and the third road game. But we play at LSU, at LSU which, you know, three or four weeks ago, that looked like um, – uh, that's a tough place to to win. Uh, now it doesn't look like so much of a tough place to win. Auburn should beat LSU. Should be a lot of teams beating LSU this year. Then Auburn plays at Arkansas, and then Auburn has a week off, and they play at Texas A&M. So there's a possibility, Kev. There's a possibility. I don't want to jinx myself, but there's a possibility that Auburn and Georgia on Saturday, November 11th, might be. Where game day in the crew comes in for a long time. A lot of, mm-hmm. lot of time to go there. But here's what I wanted to talk about. Here's what I want to get your thoughts on, too. Jared Stidham. Uh, Jared Stidham, Auburn quarterback. It was pretty obvious the first two games of the year that Stidham had not taken a real snap in a live football game in well over a year and a half. Um, you know, in the Georgia Southern game that Auburn won 41-7, to Stidham was uh, 14 of 24 uh, for 185 yards, but uh, he didn't look all that good. I mean, Georgia Southern doesn't have a great defense. Stidham looked a little little scared to pull the trigger. Um, and uh, the Clemson game did, didn't look a whole lot different, looked a lot worse. In fairness, there are a lot of quarterbacks that are going to look like that when they play Clemson this year. Um, but then, uh, you know, the Mercer game, Auburn wins 24-10. to 10. Uh, A really bad game for Auburn, though. They turned the ball over four times, five times. 
Uh, one mm-hmm. interception from Stidham and four fumbles. Auburn wins the game 24-10. Stidham, if you looked at it on the storyline, had great numbers, 32 of 37 for 364 yards. But it was Mercer. But these last two games, um, the efficiency uh, is just uh, really the last three games. I'm going to include Mercer in that too. 86% completion ratio against Mercer, 76% completion ratio against Missouri, 81% completion percentage against Mississippi State. This is a quarterback that looks like he's growing into the system. Gus Malzahn and his offenses over time have always struggled early, and then they don't get into rhythm until three, four, five, six games into the season. Um, yards per attempt in the Georgia Southern game, 7.7 in the Clemson game, 3.3 in the Mercer game, 9.8. Listen to these two statistics in the last two games. In the Missouri game, yards per attempt for Jared Stidham, 12.8. This weekend against Mississippi State, 16.5. Wow. You know, um, I'm an Auburn fan, Kip, so, uh, you know, I, I – uh, you know, uh, I tend to look at the Auburn football team either too good or I'm too hard on them. You know, I can't figure this team out this year. Tell me where I'm going with this Auburn team. Well, I, I, I think Stidham the last couple of weeks, um, I mean, you talk about a guy who looks the part. Um, I, and I love the fact if they give him a pocket and let him sit his feet, I mean, the, the deep ball this kid throws is a thing of beauty. He made a couple of fantastic deep throws that were just the kind of ones that would, you know, just drop from the sky. And they're, they're the easiest passes to catch because, uh, I mean, he put them right on the mark from, you know, 35, 40 yards down the field. So um, he, he really impressed me uh, as, as a kind of pocket passer. Um, you know, and like you, you said, too, that the trip to Clemson, that they're going to disrupt anybody. So I, I think you just got to kind of throw that one out. It was only his second, his second Auburn start. Uh, and the first two drives, I mean, actually, you know, Auburn moved the ball a little bit, and then the the, the dam broke because they uh, couldn't protect him anymore, and they really didn't have an answer. And my criticism that game wasn't so much about Stidham; it was that Gus didn't have a backup plan. I mean, go to go to some kind of screen game, go to something intermediate. Uh, they kept you know, trying to you know make big plays down the field, and against that defense, you just didn't have time to do that. But since then, yeah. they've really gotten the offense cranking. Um, you know, again, they, they, the opponents that, that they've played, I mean, I still think Mississippi State is arguably a top five SEC team this year, maybe fifth or sixth right now. I'd put them maybe in the power rankings. They did have a disastrous two-week stretch uh, at Georgia and Auburn, but I think that's more those two teams, particularly defensively, both being so proficient, um, that you know, Mississippi State's defense uh, game as they were just got worn down. In the Georgia game, uh, just got pounded on the run game and the flea flicker to start things. The Auburn game, um, you know, Carryon Johnson had a decent game. I guess Petway is still struggling with some injuries and some fumble issues. But I, but you have I think Petway's like still to, in the doghouse, Kip. I I, I don't know yeah, that I he's think quite right. gotten out of Gus's doghouse. Yeah, I th- I, I think he. Uh, you mentioned the tournament <laughs> against Mercer. He was responsible for several of those. So uh, yes, I don't know was. what's going on with him. But but you remember the stretch Auburn had last year during the season, the middle part of the year. Petway was unstoppable. So boy, if they get him back, yes, on he was. Track, uh, I yeah. mean, good grief. This could be that this. You know, this is again that just. And I'm going to make the same statement about Auburn as I did about Georgia. Their defense makes them a legitimate contender. So 
Uh, yeah. The round-robin tournament toward the end of the year, Georgia-Auburn, Auburn-Alabama, um, and then potentially Georgia and the winner of the Iron Bowl in Atlanta, that's a, that's a pretty intriguing little tournament there over a four-week period. Of course, we have to uh, take, take a pause for the cupcake game before the final week, um, which is it's something yeah. I, 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 I don't want to get on that rant, but in week 12 or 13, everybody takes a step back and plays a – Division two team, which I do not understand that in the scheduling, but that's uh, that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but but that's this is exactly really shaping right, up. Kevin. I'm I'd right say about one more thing, real quick, Kevin. I wanted to get your thoughts on before. Actually, two yeah. things I wanted to get your thoughts on before we right. take a sixty second break and then we we pivot and we talk about NFL football very very quietly. And it goes to show what a program that Dabo Sweeney is has built at Clemson very very quietly. Clemson is the number two team in the country. They are 5-0. and And five games into the season, they are 2-0 and on the road against ESPN game day. Uh, they go up to Louisville uh, four weeks ago and absolutely dominate. T- three weeks ago, take care of business. They take a week off to uh, beat a Boston College team. And then they go up to Virginia Tech. They go up to Blacksburg, where uh, game day is, and uh, they take on a 4-0 and Virginia Tech team. And uh, the final score was 31-17, to so it uh, it didn't look like a game that was way out of hand. But the, the reality is uh, this wasn't all that close of a football game. It was 24-3 to at the end of the uh, third quarter. Virginia Tech uh, had a garbage touchdown late. This Clemson team, my word. I mean, they, they've almost positioned themselves uh, as a program that is a, you know, kind of a lock and reload and restock like the Crimson Tide is. Could we possibly look, be looking at year three, three in a row? be fascinating if it is. Certainly the odds are against it. The numbers say it's almost impossible to happen. But could we once again find ourselves – in a national title game between Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney. Will this be the tiebreaker between the two of them? Well, indisputably, uh, that this year, right at the moment, that they're the two best teams. I mean, I don't think anybody could possibly make an argument uh, contrary to that. Uh, they've, they've both uh, answered every challenge and then some. And, uh, again, Clemson's defense is – just, uh, I mean, it, it it is it is unbelievably talented. Uh, their front uh, group is is uh, is elite. Um, I, I still wonder about their offense a little bit. You know, I'm not that impressed. I mean, it, it, as 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 uh, as heroic as the road wins at Louisville and uh, and Virginia Tech are, and as impressive as they are. Um, you know, I don't think either of those defenses uh, are great defenses. I think Virginia Tech uh, gets a little bit more credit because of Bud Foster. And But, uh, you know, I watched the West Virginia game on opening night. West Virginia had a lot of success against that defense. And West Virginia is a good team in the Big 12. But uh, I'm still not really – I, I, I didn't really buy into the Hokies as much as some others. So, the Clemson's defense, once again, makes them a major national championship contender. And the young quarterback uh, is getting better every every game, uh, Kelly Bryant. So, um, yeah, I I I I, I, I got to tell you, Chip, I I wouldn't bet very big money right now against an Alabama Clemson three. Um, right now, they're the two best teams I've seen, and the gap to the rest is pretty considerable. 
It really is. One more game. Uh, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on Kip, then we'll take a short break. Um, Southern Cal goes into uh, uh, goes into Pullman, Washington, to take on Mike Leach and uh, and Washington State and uh, Washington State late Friday night game for those of us on the East Coast. I think it was a ten ten thirty kickoff Eastern time, but uh, uh, Washington State Cougars they came down to Auburn a few weeks uh, a few years ago for the first game of the year, but uh, they go in on Friday night. And defeat Southern Cal, and I, I got to ask you, Kip. I mean, uh, what is what do you think has happened to Sam Darnold? I mean, before the season starts, uh, I don't want to say the poor kid, but I'm going to say the poor kid. Uh, he has one good year. He gets um, he gets thrust into the starting position four games into the season because of an injury to the starter. He has a phenomenal bowl game, puts him some good numbers. He's six four, two thirty, throws a pretty pass. Look, I think Sam Darnold's a good quarterback, but tons of pressure put on the kid in the offseason. And, you know, look, this Southern Cal team uh, has one loss. They could easily have two losses because they had to go to overtime against Texas. And, and they didn't pull away in week one against Western Michigan until late. Sam Darnold, five games into the season, has nine touchdowns, eight interceptions. That's two more than he had all of last year, Kip. What do you think is wrong with Sam Darnold at Southern Cal? Well, I, you know, it, it, it's the classic case of expectations. I mean, they just, uh, you know, he stepped in for USC last year and they hit a great stretch and he could do no wrong. But um, he was, he was, uh, I, I guess, uh, crowned as the uh, great, the next great quarterback and uh, was pretty much conceded almost by a lot of experts to Heisman before the season even started. And, uh, you know, I, the schedule SC's played has been pretty impressive to me. Uh, Western Michigan, who was an undefeated team last year until their bowl game, I mean, they are certainly from the MAC, but, I mean, that's not exactly a cupcake opener, and they kind of were overlooking them because it was strange that Stanford was the second game on their schedule. Uh, USC uh, had, to, had to fight to beat Western Michigan. Stanford was the one game this year that they looked fabulous. They, uh, they did everything right offensively and defensively. But since then, they didn't take Texas uh, as seriously as they should. Texas had every opportunity to win that game. Darnone did a great job getting the, uh, the the tying drive to send it to overtime. And then back-to-back road games, I don't care. When you get in conference play, they were at Berkeley two weeks ago and played Cal, and uh, the game was close for about two and a half quarters until SC pulled away. And then the, the fateful Friday night games have, uh, for good teams, have been a real problem if you look back historically. Yeah. They're always on Friday nights one shocking upset every year. And Mike Leach has quietly built a pretty good program at Washington State. It's an impossible place to get to in Pullman. Um, I, I just think it was, you know, back-to-back road trips. And you say, oh, well, they just had to go to Cal. Well, from L.A. up to, uh, up to Berkeley is not a short jaunt. Um, and then to have to come right back on a short week and go to Pullman, that was a that was a tough task. And they lost; they already had big offensive lineman issues, and they lost two more in that game. So they were playing a couple of true freshmen. Uh, I just think Darnold's feeling the heat a little bit, and has been in. You know, it's like a pitcher when you say, "Well, this guy's throwing 90 pitches," and uh, but none of them have been really stressful or. Uh, it, it seems like Darno every series is in a stressful situation this year, and, and I think that's led to some mistakes. And, um, you know, I still think this is a very good football team, but uh, 
I think the schedule and the back-to-back road game just kind of caught up with him, and and uh, and he's struggling a little bit. I think he's feeling the pressure. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, tons of pressure put on the kid in the off season. I mean, but, you know, they almost anointed him the number one draft pick, and and he didn't even have a full season as a starter in college under his belt. So probably unrealistic expectations to put the kid on. You talk about Pullman, Washington being difficult to be uh, to get to. I've been to Pullman, Washington, Kip. I, uh, have you? And it is difficult to be to, but it is it is. Um, it is uh, one of the prettiest campuses and one of the prettiest areas of the country that that, that you'll find. Um, uh, I was up there a couple years ago to give a uh, uh, to give a presentation at the University of Idaho um, and uh, Moscow, Idaho, and uh, Pullman, Washington <laughs> are only 13 miles apart. And, I did not um, realize. That. I actually I pre- presented at the University of Idaho in Moscow, but uh, stayed at, uh, at at Pullman, Washington. And uh, you know, uh, uh, when you're driving there, you uh, you know the GPS tells you you're on the right track. And and you know when you're in the car, you're on a two-lane road, and you're going through rolling hills and cornfields. And then all of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, you come into a college town, and it is a pretty pretty huh. town. And um, I uh, I made a uh, uh, I made a commitment then that I want to come back here sometime for a football game. Haven't done it yet, but I I do want to get back and do that because it's certainly a very very pretty area of the country. Kip, we're going to take a uh, sixty second break, and when we come back, we are going to welcome to the show the Buffalo Bad Boy, and we have a special special show on the NFL this week with the Buffalo Bills defeating the Atlanta Falcons this week. We're going to talk about it with Buffalo Zone Pete Tasca on the uh, other side of this break. We'll be back 60 seconds Red Zone Sports Report. about a crazy week in college football because that's the case every weekend it seems like there's 
storylines that we didn't see, and you know we pay a lot of attention to this that we didn't see coming into the weekend. I got to tell you, Kip, in the NFL, that was the same thing this weekend. As we welcome to the show the Buffalo Bad Boy, I have to say, one of those storylines this week, and I dare to say it, I, I find myself in a position in the second segment of the show. Very much similar to where I found myself in the beginning segment of the show, having to give credit to the Georgia Bulldogs about being a good football team this year. And now all of a sudden on the second end of the show, I'm talking about the Buffalo Bills. And before I I hand it over to the Buffalo bad boy, live from Buffalo, New York, Mr. Pete could it tell us a little bit about what's going on up there, what the Bills are drinking in Orchard Park. i got to tell you, the last time the Bills played in an NFL postseason game was January 8th, the year 2000. That's right, folks. January 8th of 2000, where were you? Well, you probably were not watching a Bills playoff game. Unless you were Pete Tasker and you were in Buffalo, New York. Look, guys, this Bills team could be for real. Coming into this game against Atlanta, they led the league in fewest points allowed. I think they're now second in the league in fewest points allowed. This defense rushes to the ball. They're good at stopping the run. They are good, and they are very good at stopping the pass. Up until this week, they had not allowed – a touchdown pass. They did allow one touchdown pass to Matt Ryan, but they got back at him because they picked two of his balls. Uh, Pete Tasker, the Buffalo bad boy, two weeks ago, we were talking about the Denver Broncos coming into Buffalo, and we were talking about the fact that the line didn't look right, that, you know, maybe for maybe folks after Denver beat the Dallas Cowboys, by however many points it was at home, that the odds makers weren't giving Denver enough respect. Well, didn't look like they were giving Denver respect. Buffalo beats them outright. Now I think it's safe to say, are the odds makers giving the Buffalo Bills respect? Pete, give us your thoughts on the Buffalo Bills. Is this team for real? And before you answer that question, let me also put another question to you. Can this team make a playoff run? (laughs) What a setup that was, Chipper. Good evening, Chip. Good evening, good evening, everyone. Thanks for having me back on again. It's a very, very nice evening to be talking about the Buffalo Bills, of course. I mean, we are the very embodiment of long-suffering in Buffalo, as you, you just so insightfully enumerated for us, Chip. It's been 17, could be 18 years, depending on how this whole thing plays out here. But to jump out to a 3-1 and one start is, is quite frankly stunning on the one hand. Uh, it's very surreal on another hand. Um, in Buffalo, you, you, can, you can well understand that we're, we're a little skittish about this whole thing. <laughs> We've had the rug pulled out from underneath us a couple of times throughout the course of this 17-year horrible drought that we've been on. Uh, you know, Trent Edwards a couple of years back got us off to a five and two start. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick off to a, a three and one, four and one start at one point a few years back as well, and it, it just collapsed from there. I, I don't see this team collapsing in that type of manner. Uh, we've seen enough of these fragile Buffalo Bills teams, almost fooled gold type of Buffalo Bills teams over the years. 
this team, it, it has a certain, you know, toughness to it, no question about it. Obviously, the tone has been set by Sean McDermott, the head coach, no doubt about that. Uh, the defense is playing out of its mind. And what an indictment on Rex Ryan that with virtually the same talent, and in some, in some cases, uh, well, not in some cases, a completely remade secondary. Let, let's at least put that out there. Uh, but Rex Ryan could not get this defense moving forward any any kind of consistently positive direction for two consecutive years. It was it was a singular reason why we didn't approach the doorstep of the playoffs over the last two years because of this defensive guru that he claimed to be all these years. Here comes Sean McDermott. He goes back to a simple attack. The, the quarterback approach basically is what it is, a, kind of a zone scheme in terms of the secondary and all that. And, and the defense has been lights out. You really have to give a lot of credit to McDermott, Leslie Frazier, the new defensive coordinator who's been around for a long, long time. We know that. And then Rick Dennison, the offensive coordinator, comes from that Shanahan coaching tree, that that, that zone rushing scheme. And he's, he's finally using Tyrod out of the pocket a little bit, got him on some, some design rollouts, some bootlegs. And what a pretty deep ball he really throws. So we're excited here in Buffalo, rightfully so. We're not too excited yet, Chip. I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let the cat out of the bag. But, but allow me to say that I'm a little bit nervous about the Cincinnati Bengals this week. I'll just leave it at that for now. <laughs> <laughs> you, Pete, you, you, you missed the first part of the show, but you sound like me worried about the Ole Miss Rebels coming into uh, <laughs> to Auburn. But I, I tell you what, what, what reminds me. I, I talked in the first half of the show. And the reason I think the Georgia Bulldogs are such a good team this year and why they're so dangerous is because, you know, if if we would have known on the show last week that if we would have known what Jake Fromm's statistics were from the week, and Jake Fromm, by the way, was uh, 8 of 15 for, uh, I believe it was 87 yards with a touchdown and an interception, I'd have said Tennessee beat Georgia. No, Tennessee Lost to Georgia thirty-eight to nothing, and those were the starting quarterbacks' oh. numbers. Tyrod Taylor didn't do anything fantastic. He was seventeen and twenty for one hundred and eighty-two yards and a touchdown. He didn't throw an interception. Managed the game a little bit, but you know, if, if I would have told you week ago though those were Tyrod's numbers, you probably think it wouldn't have been enough to uh, to win the game against the Falcons. I'll say this: last week we missed the savage burn, Mister Steve Butler. He was um, he was on vacation with his family, a well deserved vacation, by the way. But I got to tell you, I think Steve Butler, I think the Savage Burn, who is not with us this week because uh, he threw out his back today and um, is uh, is medicated. Let me just say that medicated and has got to go to the doctor <laughs> tomorrow. He's kind of becoming Pete like he's the Andrew Luck of the Red Zone Sports Report, right? I mean he. You know, he's always got something ailing, but he sits on the sidelines with a smile on his face. And, you know, he acts like he's healthy, but you never know when he's going to get in. And, um, you know, I think we're going to start an investigation. We're going to get the the brass at the Red Zone Sports Report to start an investigation. So Steve Butler, the Savage Bird, can't be with us, uh, Pete. But I will read you a text chain that I had with the Savage Bird today, and I will give you an opportunity to comment. So uh, uh, the Savage Bird threw out his back today, and he's on uh, a, quote, healthy dose of ibuprofen. Um, he says, I, I threw out my back. Um, uh, my back is gone. I got an appointment first thing in the morning. It sucks, but my shoulder hurts too. 
I'm playing too much <laughs> tennis. I mean, it happens, right? When you get as old as the burn is, it happens. So he said he's taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen now, and he's going to get some real pain meds tomorrow. So I told the burn, I said, look, Ben, you get healthy, right? Because we only want to do this podcast with a healthy burn. I mean, we don't want to do this podcast if the burn's not healthy. And I said, but look, you got to know, you got to know that the bad boy is going to be on tonight, and he's going to take a, a good portion of the show discussing the resurgence of the Buffalo Bills. And I will read to everybody the response from our esteemed colleague of the Red Zone Sports Report, the savage burn, Mr. Steve Butler. And I'm quoting Steve Text. He said, shoot. He and the other 12 guys on our text chain have dogged out the Bills and Tyrod Taylor all year. Not one of them could talk shit to me because I stuck with Sean since his hiring. He's a William and Mary guy, too. He played for Dan Quinn there. My father has an Ethan Allen store there across the street from campus. Tyrod is from my hometown as well, and you've heard my speech on them. I called them, and not one of them called me up. They are screwed since the four Super Bowls. I've watched hundred hour, hundreds of hours from it since the movie. <laughs> Sean's trades have been good, too. Um, <laughs> wow. The bad boy, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond since the savage bird is not here to defend himself, but... It sounds like the Savage Burn took 400 milligrams too much ibuprofen. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I'll certainly take it easy on the big boy tonight, right? He, he's suffering. He's in pain. It would have been nice if he would have put the helmet on and strapped it up for a couple of minutes on the show tonight so he could have uh, sparred a touch between the uh, you know the Bills and the, and the Falcons here. No doubt about it. He, he knows full well the damaged psyche of Bills fan. I mean, I, I am I am just one voice, uh, but I guess I'm emblematic of of the fragile psyche that we have. I, I mean, there, there is a, a lot of trepidation in Bills Nation attached to the excitement. It, it's just never we're never out of the woods, guys. We're we're perpetually chasing ghosts at this point. There's there's just no way around it. Even at three and one. And let's be honest, like this football game, let's just look at the game you know, from, from a more objective perspective and really look at it more or less from you know, the Atlanta Falcons perspective. You know, I, I went out on a limb last week and I called the Super Bowl, the Atlanta Falcons and the, the New England Patriots. Well, it looks like I should be eating my words at this point based on their performances this weekend. I mean, Atlanta didn't play a bad football game, I wouldn't say, and the officials absolutely played a role. And I'm still wondering, as many of us are, how they could have called that, that fumble that Tredavious White picked up and took back 50 yards for a touchdown, how they, that was not an incomplete pass in my, in my estimation, I'll never know. I mean, they're over-officiating this game these days in a way that's virtually nauseating. Granted, it went our way. We'll take it. So few of those types of calls have gone the Buffalo Bills way over these years. But, but it's just ridiculous that, that the game is kind of won and lost based on that type of play. To me, that's an incomplete pass. It never should have been a fumble. It certainly never should have been a touchdown. Really the swing play of the, of the football game. But beyond that, Matt Ryan, he, he's quite honestly, I, it, it's hard to tell. We all know that, that the burn has been beating the drum. There, there's no greater ambassador for Matty Ice than the Savage Bird. We all know that. 
He finally got the stamp of approval last year of being elite. He takes him to the Super Bowl. He wins the MVP, so on and so forth. He finally gets the trophy, the crown, if you will. But then he comes out this year in these last couple of games. He just hasn't looked right. Something's off. We know there were the injuries, too, to Julio Jones and Mohamed Sanu. But the bottom line is, in a tight football game, coming down the stretch again, against a, a team like the Buffalo Bills that's playing well, but you, you had to believe that, that we were, you know, that the typical Buffalo deal is kind of taking hold because this is Matt Ryan, this is the Atlanta Falcons, they're on their home turf. It looked like it was going to go the other way, and it didn't. And why? Well, to, to, to my view, it's because they went away from the running game and or the short passing game that, that was emphasizing the great skill of their two excellent running backs more, much the same way that they did it against the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. And I just don't like this trend. Matty Ice just continues to try to push the ball down the field in, in a way that, that's counterproductive too often. I want to see these backs carrying this football team, especially while they're both still healthy, and let them, you know, carry this team back to glory, hopefully. Because make no mistake, I am a Falcons fan. Now, I'm I'm a Bills fan through and through. We all know that. But I'm a Falcons fan, and I'm back on board, and I want to see this thing happen in the NFC. It's just not looking right, and I don't know why. And now we're dealing with the injuries, as as we all know. And and it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here because uh, we we all know that Matt Ryan, there's something that's looking a little bit off right now. And we'll see where it goes in the next couple of weeks. But, yeah, to the Savage Burn, great win for the Bills. Too bad you couldn't be with us tonight if you're listening, Stevie. But uh, hopefully you'll be back on next week and we'll be talking about some more positive, um, you know, developments in the world of the Bills and the Falcons for sure. Yeah, Pete, and I tell you, I mean, you're exactly right about Matt Ryan. I can tell you what – I can tell you the problem that Matt Ryan is having. It, it all stems – from what happened on the evening of Wednesday, September 7th. There was a fantasy football owner in Fayetteville, Georgia, who was a team by the name of the Patriots Ball Boys. And uh, they drafted Matt Ryan as their starting quarterback. And when they did, um, they uh, they jinxed him. And uh, But since the Savage Burn is not with us tonight to, uh, to share his thoughts, I, I feel compelled to read more of his texts. Because we we talked about this in text as well, because um, uh, there is no greater defender for Matt Matty Ice than the Savage Burn. So yesterday six eighteen, the Savage Burn says, "My man Ice is struggling, bro." Dot dot dot. Sark and him have not gelled, and it's obvious. At which point I got back to him and I said, "It's not Sark, man. It's me. I drafted him to be my fantasy for." <laughs> Fantasy football quarterback. It's the kiss of death. I feel like I owe him an apology. Um, Kim Kiefer. All of a sudden, we're in October. You heard what this? Well, you heard what the Buffalo Bad Boys said. We are in October, and we didn't even talk about the New England Patriots. But let me say this, Kip. The Buffalo Bills in October are tied uh, with a couple other teams for the second best record in the league. There's only one undefeated team, the Kansas City Chiefs. But here we are in October, and the leader of the AFC East alone at the top is not the New England Patriots. It's not the Miami Dolphins. It's the Buffalo Bills. Kip, did you watch this game this weekend between Atlanta and Buffalo? Give me your thoughts on the Atlanta-Buffalo game. 
I did, and uh, and and uh, I, I congratulate Pete and all of the uh, the fine, outstanding residents of Buffalo, long-suffering residents of Buffalo. The first place Buffalo Bills came to Atlanta, the defending <laughs> NFC champion, and were the better team on Sunday. There's no two ways about it. They played a better game. They were more motivated. Um, I know I I, 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 I was literally uh, watching that last drive, and the Falcons executed a very effective last drive. After Stephen Hauschka, what a nice gift. Thank you, Pete Carroll, for uh, releasing him for you guys. 56 and 55 yarders like they were chip shots. We talked about that on the show last week. These NFL kickers are just ridiculous. Um, so a six-point spread. The Falcons have the ball back with a couple minutes left. I know what everybody in Buffalo was thinking. We're going to lose by one point. It's going to be all the same old, same old. And the Falcons efficiently come down the field. But isn't it amazing in football how one kind of seemingly uh, innocuous play comes back and is huge? And, and the one I'm going to mention to you, I'm sure you guys will remember when I say it, but I don't think anybody focused on it at the time. The Falcons had the ball at, I think, the 13 or 14-yard line. It was second It was second and five. And Matt Ryan threw a quick pass out into the flat to Austin Hooper, the tight end. Uh, the Falcons were out of timeouts. Hooper was so determined to run out of bounds, instead of taking an angle and gaining one more yard to give them a fresh set of downs, he ran directly out of bounds when he easily could have made the first down and gotten one more yard. That one stupid decision in his frantic attempt to yeah. get out of bounds, I believe, cost the Falcons the the, the heartbreaking uh, yeah. loss or the heartbreaking win that would have been a, a, a or exciting win for the Falcons or the heartbreak for the Bills. Because on third down, they tried to throw in the end zone and were unsuccessful. And on fourth down, uh, you know, after a lot of, uh, you know, uh, d- debate by the uh, announcing crew what they would do, um, they, they, they could not get that additional yard. And I, I think it's a whole different circumstance if Hooper gets the first down and you've got 30-some-odd seconds to, uh, to make four throws in the end zone. So it was meant to be the right team. The team that deserved to win the game, in my mind, won the game. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to be as hard on the Falcons as, as, as some people are. I thought their running game was still very good, and the Bills' run defense is stout. Uh, Devontae Freeman is a tremendous back, and they, they, should have, they should have hitched the wagon to him a little more, in my opinion. But when Julio and Mohamed Sanu go out, uh, all of a sudden the go-to guys are Justin Hardy and Taylor Gabriel. Uh, this Falcons is going to be in trouble with, with the, both the bell cows uh, on the shelf, and I don't know the severity of those two injuries. But uh, props to the Bills. Uh, that was a, a big-time road win, just like the Panthers was in, in New England. And what about the L.A. Rams going into Dallas and, and uh, taking it to the, the, the boys at Jerry World? Very interesting week in the NFL. It was a very interesting week in the NFL. Kip, let me pivot for a little bit. We're going to pivot away from football and uh, talk a little bit. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the tragic events in Las Vegas, Nevada. We all woke up on Monday morning, um, and and, uh, some of us might have gone to bed. Uh, uh, might have gone to bed Sunday night, Noda, but we all woke up Monday morning to learn of the terrible, terrible tragedy in Las Vegas. We now know 59, the death toll stands at 59 people right now uh, were killed, the largest um, 
um, uh, the largest domestic um, uh, mass shooting in U.S. history. Um, your son Kip is a two sons, in fact, in fact, live out in Las Vegas. I believe both of them work for the Las Vegas Sun. I was very pleased. Uh, the first thing I did was check. Uh, Facebook to see if there was any updates from you, and thankfully there was that your both of your boys were safe. Uh, but I, I know you have. Uh, 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 it's got to be tough on a dad who has two kids out in the Las Vegas area, both of whom I believe work for the Las Vegas Sun. Uh, tell us a little bit, Kip, if you can, about um, about really kind of you know uh, uh, when you found out about. Uh, what was happening out in Las Vegas, how quickly your family was able to get in touch with you, and uh, what what effect, if any, it has had on, on your sons and, and their roles as um, uh, in, in whatever roles they play with the Las Vegas Sun newspaper. Right. The, the first indication I got was at 1.15 Central Time here in the morning. I had uh, shut it down after watching the Sunday night football game and uh, – had gotten to sleep, but I, you know, typically until that first uh, time I wake up kind of in the night, I have my TV on and it, and I, and a lot of people think that's crazy, but uh, it's just for the re- the reason that, that, that of what happened on Sunday night slash Monday morning uh, just happened to kind of unconsciously hear that there have been trouble in, in Las Vegas and immediately uh, mobilized. My, my first concern to be honest is, uh, I knew both my sons were at home uh, that evening and not and not uh, in in the Route 91, which is right on the Las Vegas Strip. It's it's kind of hard to describe. It's right across from the Luxor. It's a big uh, uh, concert and fairground type of uh, of a venue. It's owned by MGM Corporation. Um, but ironically, the reason I knew is because my sons are so excited about the beginning of the National Hockey League season because the brand-new Las Vegas Golden Knights are going to debut for the first time, uh, the expansion club. And uh, my sons have never been into hockey, but there's such a, there's NHL fever. So they, have the, they, they had initiated a fantasy hockey league, of all things, and our draft <laughs> wrapped up uh, shortly before. And, and you talk about a, you talk about a, a draft uh, that, that was completely – You did a fantasy uh, football – excuse me, you did a fantasy NHL hockey draft, Kip. Yes, yes. Can you believe that? I'm impressed. Uh, I was an Atlanta Flames expert back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, and unfortunately none of those players were on the board, so I was kind of clueless. But, uh, Pete, I grabbed a couple Buffalo Sabres, so hopefully uh, you get those boys motivated. But the, the the point of that was I knew both my sons were at home, and uh, you know, my son, is, my son Case travels all around the country, goes to these kind of festivals, all the time, but country's not really his genre. So, you know, when I heard it was the Harvest Country Festival, I was chiefly concerned, though, for my daughter-in-law, his wife, Tracy, who works for a company that coordinates all kinds of major events in Las Vegas, wow. and it turns out her company was indeed involved in that, uh, but she wow. was not personally uh, on hand on Sunday night, which is uh, a big relief, and but they, it, then uh, tracking the events because my youngest son Clayt lives right behind the MGM, about a half mile from that venue. And once people started to flee, um, you know, the, the 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 terror of the whole thing was there was all kinds of wild reports in that first hour that there were multiple shooters and there was all you know 
So these 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 people at the concert uh, that got away from the from the basically the killing zone uh, didn't know they were safe, and they just kept running. And Clay said, you know, it was indescribable seeing how many people, you know, a, a good half mile, three quarters of a mile away, you know, were running in his complex and on the street out in front. Uh, and even a, a friend of his, or kind of a friend of a friend, wow. was banging on his door seeking refuge. And, so that that's a little disquieting at uh, at, at eleven thirty uh, at night. Um, so he he uh, was pretty much uh, close to ground zero, and it was a, a traumatic experience, of course, um, for all of them who have really adopted that community as their home. Particularly my older son and his wife, who have now been out there for seven years. Um, so very traumatic events, and uh, gosh, you just the circumstances are just so heartbreaking. I, I said tonight on my show on uh, Talk 99.5 that uh, graphic today on the television of the uh, of the victims they've got like almost like a a yearbook style just just uh, composite photos of all the people uh, on one screen and uh, just looking at those faces it really hits home that just because you know it, we we've become desensitized which is unbelievable to these kind of things because they're just so prevalent. But to see those faces, it really, really hit home for me that, you know, these people's lives were ended in just the just the blink of an eye for completely yeah. senseless and inexplicable reasons, and it's 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 just it's just so harrowing. But I am so pleased to report that that uh, my particular folks out there, uh, um, while shaken by the events, are are unscathed, and and uh, and and I'm I, I'm thankful for that. Well, Kip, I appreciate you letting everybody know. I was thinking about you and praying for you. Uh, that's the first thing I thought of when I woke up on Monday morning and saw that. Uh, and I saw that 40, I think they said 42 to 44,000 people had attended that. And um, uh, knowing that you have family out there, I, I think you had posted in the middle of the night, um, you know, that your your family was okay, which was great. But just absolutely, absolutely terrible and um you know i i had lunch uh i had lunch on friday with um um with an attorney here in atlanta who i do a little bit of work with who uh had flown out to las vegas said he was a, a about to he was going to do some things with his family on saturday and then on sunday he was flying out to las vegas for a um uh, for a convention that he was going to be at until wednesday so i'd lunch with him on friday and he was um you know, he was staying in. Um, uh, he was staying in uh, not in Mandalay Bay, but he was staying in. Um, I believe it was the Bellagio uh, down the strip a little bit, but had just gotten in. Mm-hmm. Just gotten into his room, and um, you know, saw the first responders. So it really does hit home. Crazy, crazy. As details come out about this, it's just going to be crazy. Guys, we're going to take a 30-second break. We're going to come back. When we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to ask the Buffalo bad boy a little bit about Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans. Uh, in five weeks, what a transformation. Four weeks, what a transformation that team has been. Stick with us. We'll be back 30 seconds.
Welcome back, everybody. You are listening live to the Red Zone Sports Report. My name is Chip Lake. It is Tuesday, October 3rd. We are back on Tuesdays, and we are going to go back to talking about football. And Mr. Buffalo Bad Boy, Pete Tesco, I want to get your thoughts on the Houston Texans and Deshaun Watson. What a crazy four weeks it's been for Houston. They open up the season with a pathetic performance against the Jacksonville Jaguars. They lose 29-7. to They win their next week against Cincinnati. They could have easily won the following week against New England, but they lost 36-33. to But then this past weekend, they defeat the Tennessee Titans 57-14. to And that's not an Alabama Crimson Tide score. That's an NFL score. 57-14. to uh, so, Pete, is it is it finally time to get excited about Deshaun Watson? He goes 25 of 34 for 283 yards, four touchdowns, and then added another 24 rushing yards and a touchdown as well on a 57 to 14 route. With as good as Houston has been defensively over time, uh, is this team the real deal, Pete? Well, first, Chip, if I may quickly, I just want to say, um, you know, real thankful that, that Kip's family is, is, is okay in, in Vegas and, and just want to let anybody know out there that, that my thoughts and prayers are certainly with, um, you know, the people who endured that situation um, out in Las Vegas as well. It's just been a, a difficult Indeed. time. But, you know, getting back to football, um, yeah, I mean, it goes without saying that Deshaun Watson is the real deal. I mean, Dave, Dave Sweeney had, had said it from day one that uh, whoever passes on this guy is making a big mistake. You know, I think he likened him under Michael Jordan, if I'm not mistaken, Kip, you'd be able to affirm that or not, or it was something to that effect that he said about uh, Deshaun uh, around draft time. And, uh, I mean, good for the Houston Texans. I mean, what an absolutely fabulous performance by that kid. I mean, did he look the part or what? I mean, it it really looked, in, in some ways, like child's play a little bit for him. He just absolutely controlled that football game for virtually from start to finish. I, I watched quite a bit of that game, actually, uh, on Sunday. And um, I, I'm just so thoroughly impressed by what he's able to do, the poise, the athleticism, uh, you know, the accuracy, the leadership. The, we all know about the character of the kid. I mean, what an absolutely, you know, phenomenal football player he is. And to come out and drop, well, granted, there was a defensive touchdown in there, but to drop 50 in the NFL – it's almost unheard of unless you're Tom Brady and the Patriots. But uh, what a great and, – and, and granted, Tennessee had come into that game um, looking like they might be a formidable foe and, and potentially a playoff-type team this year as well. And uh, we, we know that Mariota left the game early, and that changed the dynamic, I'm, I'm sure. But um, what a great, great performance by Deshaun Watson. And, uh, hey, if, if you're looking for a quarterback on the waiver wire, I don't know if he's out there in, in too many leagues, but – you better go out there and get Deshaun Watson because I do believe he's a real deal, and uh, we'll see we'll see what he's really made of this coming week because it's a real interesting matchup for uh, the Houston Texans against the Kansas City Chiefs this week coming up. It's going to be an incredible matchup, and I tell you, Deshaun Watson was a free agent in my I'm in two fantasy football leagues. He was a free agent in both of our leagues until last week, and then he got taken up. I don't imagine he's a free agent in too many leagues. But if he is, I can assure you they'll pick him up this week. Kip, let me talk to you about another team in the NFL that is very surprising through um, through the first four weeks. Not only are the Buffalo Bills in in uh, in first place in the AFC East, 
but the Los Angeles Rams head coach Sean McVay squad. They came into uh, they came into Sunday's game even before the game with the most efficient passing offense in football through three weeks. And even though Goff's numbers weren't um, um, weren't off the charts impressive, I think he was he was twenty one of thirty six for two hundred and fifty one yards. Uh, his teammates really stole the show. Todd Gurley racked up 215 yards from scrimmage. He had a touchdown. 80 of his 121 rushing yards came in the second half. I mean, this Los Angeles Rams team, uh, they win the opener 46-9. Yeah, they beat Indianapolis, and you know, they don't have Andrew Luck, and they're missing a few pieces. But still, you beat anybody in the NFL 46-9. That's pretty impressive. They didn't lose by a touchdown against the Redskins. They go on and, and uh, played a very impressive Thursday night game uh, two Thursdays ago against San Francisco. And then, uh, you know, they go to Dallas this week and, and beat Dallas. They play they play Seattle this weekend. Um, what do you think, Kip? Can this Rams team contend and go to, a, go to the playoffs like the Bills? Well, I mean, Todd Gurley is – the kind of player that, uh, I mean, and, and you see it in college a lot of times, a guy can completely dominate a game, but he basically did that on Sunday and, and was the difference in that game as far as, as far as what I could see. Um, the, the, uh, the, the receivers that were dispatched from the Bills to uh, the Rams that were so good in the 49er game the week before, uh, both banged up. Sammy Watkins barely was a factor in the game. I don't know if, if, if uh, Woods even played. They were both hurt in that game, the Sammy Watkins, and I know this for a fact because he's on my fantasy team, racked up all of 2.2 points. So that was, uh, that was kind of <laughs> discouraging uh, after, after about a 30-point week the week before. So uh, I, I had personal knowledge of, of that uh, particular performance, but Gurley was amazing. And Goff uh, has other weapons too. So um, yeah, I, I think as – and we talked about it a little bit last week, the Cowboys – uh, are really it's it, it's kind of odd because the way they won games last year was just you know riding that huge offensive line and Ezekiel Elliott was uh, was was dynamic and and uh, they were winning a bunch of low scoring kind of you know twenty to ten and twenty four to fourteen games and now they've been in a couple of situations where their defenses looked a little vulnerable other teams have been able to put up some points. And uh, Dak is, uh, is is going to be asked to do a lot more than manage games here. And I don't know what your guys' impressions are. I don't know if Des Bryant's the same player he was. Uh, I don't know if he's given like a, you know, a maximum effort on every play. He looks like he's still capable of making a play, but he doesn't just seem to be an ever-present factor like he used to be a couple of years ago. And we talked about Jason Witten being uh, way way long in the tooth. Um, Terrence Williams is inconsistent, drops a lot of balls. So I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, football is a weird game. Of just tiny little tweaks and different changes from season to season. You kind of get the mindset. Well, you know, the Cowboys were 13 and three last year, and were just uh, so efficient. You know, surely they're going to be the same way again with another year under their belt. But there's something just not quite right in Dallas. So I don't know if you know. Props to the Rams for going down there and getting the most unexpected road win. But I think maybe it's the Cowboys uh, not hitting on all cylinders right now and getting away from what's made them successful that is uh, the bigger story in that particular game. 
Couldn't agree more. Pete, let me talk to you a little bit about the most schizophrenic team in the NFL. And uh, I wanted to help uh, see if you could help me make sense of this team. We talked a little bit earlier about the Houston Texans and the success they had and how fast it looks like they're growing and gelling as a football team and how fast it looks like Deshaun Watson seems to be maturing as an NFL quarterback. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the Jacksonville Jaguars, who defeated the Houston Texans in week one by a score of 29-7. to They then the next week go uh, to Cincinnati, and they lay an egg, uh, but still end up uh, – they they lay they lay an egg. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I I was looking at the um, uh, they did they did lay an egg, but I was looking at the Houston Texans. Uh, I was looking at the Houston Texans schedule. Uh, looking at the Jacksonville Jaguars, they laid an egg week two, not at Cincinnati. Tennessee. They laid an egg week two against the Tennessee Titans in a game that wasn't as close as the final score indicated in 37 to seven, and then they go across the pond. And they go across the pond a lot because you don't ever see the Patriots playing in London, right? I mean, it's, you know, you see Jacksonville playing there four times, but never the New England Patriots. And uh, Jacksonville 3-0 and in their last three games. I don't know what voodoo happens to Blake Bortles. Every time he gets on a plane in London and comes back stateside. But whatever happens, it's not good. And so, Pete, you need to step in and slap me the next time I get excited about this Jacksonville Jaguars <laughs> team. They're 2-2. Two and two. They beat Houston 29-7 to in the first game of the year. Then they completely lay an egg against Texas. Excuse me, Tennessee. Then they go to London and they beat Baltimore 44-7 to and they weren't. it wasn't that close. Then they come back stateside, and they lose to the New York Jets, in which Blake Bortles goes 15 of 35 for 140 yards, and he threw an interception late in the game that helped cap the game. What in the world are NFL fans supposed to make of this Jacksonville Jaguars team, Pete? Well, honestly, I don't have an answer for you, Chip. I I would just say get off of that bandwagon now and do yourself a favor. Um, I I mean, we we, would have thought, and it looked like, especially when you you look at the talent on this football team with with the draft that they had, the free agents that that they've kind of acquired over the last couple of years, and, you know, bringing in Tom Coughlin, and we mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, Doug Marone, the new head coach, they were going to stabilize this team. And and as as you just alluded to, we thought, again, fool's gold it turned out to be, it looks like. But we thought that Blake Bortles had turned that corner. Uh, you know, maybe Leonard Fournette and the, the, the new emphasis on the run game was going to, uh, you know, take some of that pressure off of him. But, you know, then you look at this game against the New York Jets. I mean, you know, a team that, that everybody had left for dead before the season even started. The tank talk was, was the talk of the town. And uh, here they are, two and two, you know, right behind the uh, the Buffalo Bills in, in the AFC East, you know, tied with the New England Patriots. I mean, this stuff comes from in the NFL this year. It's really kind of strange, but um, yeah, it, there's no figuring out this football team. I, I again, I really did think that Coughlin and Marone were going to stabilize this, this organization and the team itself. Maybe get Bortles to uh, you know to play with with a, with a little more consistency, but it's just not happening. And, and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Jets ran for over 250 yards in that football game. I mean, it's just ridiculous, and, and there's there's no explanation for it. And, and there are many teams out there in the NFL this year, as, as Kip just mentioned. It, it's a strange game. It, it's hard to really pinpoint. But this year, 
really seems to be taken on a you know a, a quite a quite a strange complexion on so many levels, and, and you can include the Buffalo Bills and and what they've done you know up to this point in, into that equation. But I mean, you look at the Ravens, you look at the Steelers and the inconsistency of of, of their team. You look at the 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 NFC East and and, and that jumbled mess, and, and the New York Giants being all in four. It's just a really strange year, and, and it's going to be fun to see how it shakes out as we move ahead. It really is. It's, it's going to make for a really interesting, uh, you know, second half of the season, even though we still have the first half to go. But we all know that's when it starts to get real interesting once we get that past that midway point. It is, and Eli Manning and Philip Rivers are combined. O for eight in the early football season. Crazy. Nobody who would have thunk. Guys, we're going to take a 30-second break. When we come back, it is time for winners and losers. We are going to start our winners and losers segment with our college football guru, live from Birmingham, Alabama, Kip Kiefer. Uh, Give us 30 seconds, guys, and on the back end, winners and losers in the week in sports. He has uh, stepped in in just a couple of weeks and become a superstar in the NFL. 
and uh, he he makes that humanitarian gesture to people that were really in need, and that's just something that's so commendable that uh, he's got to be my winner. My loser is the uh, football fans of the SEC who were very excited uh, about the uh, the big matchups last weekend: Georgia, Tennessee on CBS, Auburn, Mississippi State, and Alabama, Ole Miss doubleheader at night. The prime time feature games: Georgia forty-one nothing. Auburn 49-10, <laughs> Alabama 66-3, final score cumulative 156-13, cliffhanger and all. Uh, my goodness, uh, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to be any better this week when the feature game on CBS is LSU coming in red hot off a disastrous home loss to Troy and the Florida Gators who have somehow with, with duct tape and incantations and miracles managed to win their games. Uh, I'm not very excited about LSU Florida and the other matchups. Uh, I guess the other primetime game is Alabama Texas A&M. And as you mentioned earlier, Chip, Texas A&M at home at Kyle field in college station, a 26 and a half point underdog. Uh, this is this is not very good theater in the SEC right now. Kip, you're exactly right. I couldn't agree with you more about Deshaun Watson. What a great kid. Gainesville, Georgia's own. We're proud of him. I hope he does well in Houston. I'm cheering for him, unless I play against him in fantasy football. That'll be the only week I don't cheer for him. But you're exactly right. What an egg. What an egg. The uh, uh, the conference laid this week. But if there was any solace. Um, it did give people an opportunity if they wanted to watch a close game to watch Oklahoma State and Texas Tech, which was a phenomenal game that I ended up switching back and forth mm-hmm. for. But in any event, you're exactly right. Good winners and losers. The Buffalo bad boy, Pete Tasca, your winners and losers for the week in sports. Well, I'm, I'm going to start uh, out there in New England tonight with my loser of the week, Chip. And, and, and it's, a, it's a combination, I guess, of Bill Belichick and Stephon Gilmore, former cornerback of the Buffalo Bills. You know, we watched Stephon Gilmore here in Buffalo for four years, uh, basically underachieve. Uh, Sean McDermott and company basically let him walk. Bill Belichick goes out and hands the guy $60 million, and and we could never understand, you know, what what was he seeing in Stephon Gilmore that we never saw for four or five years here in Buffalo – and, and Belichick, being Belichick, we, we figured, well, there's got to be something about this guy that's gonna, he's going to turn him into some sort of all-pro. And it's actually gone completely the other way. You, you had receivers running free virtually all afternoon long, you know, on Sunday against Stephon Gilmore. He actually got benched in that football game. Uh, had to bring him back because of an injury. So it's really nice to see the underachievement continue there in New England with Stephon Gilmore, Bill Belichick, for giving him $60 million. He's my loser of the week. Winner of the week, I'll stay right there in that game. And i got to give props to Cam Newton for the bounce-back performance against New England in that game. Accounted for four touchdowns, threw for over 300 yards. After basically he was left for dead last week, is Cam Newton ever going to be the same again? Will Cam Newton ever be able to bounce back? Will he bounce back in a big way? Huge win for the Panthers. Huge win for the AFC East and the AFC in general. And the Buffalo Bills, of course, beating the New England Patriots. Cam Newton is my winner of the week this week, gentlemen. And ah, I'm great winner of the week, Pete. Great winner of the week. <laughs> Always love it when Cam Newton's the winner of the week. And you're right. Back against the wall up in Foxborough. 
Nobody thought anything from him. As he lost it, as he lost a step, ends up coming away a winner. Big winner of the week for Cam Newton. Very well deserved. My winner of the week is the United States President's Cup golf team, captained by Steve Stricker. They soundly defeated the international team this past weekend up at Liberty National Golf Club in, New- in Jersey City, New Jersey, by a final score of 19-11. to 11. Uh, It wasn't that close, folks. The Americans kind of mailed it in on Sunday in the singles matches as they had a 14-and-a-half to 3-and-a-half lead going into Sunday. Uh, big kudos specifically out to Dustin Johnson. Played all five matches, went 4-0-1. Oh, so big winner of the week for the United States International President's Cup team. My loser of the week is LSU Athletic Director Joe Oliva. He fires Les Miles midway through last season. Makes Ed Orgeron the interim coach, and Ed Orgeron, as he normally does, has a little bit of success as interim coach. So not only does Avila make him the permanent head coach, but as part of his contract, he agrees to a $12 million first-year buyout, meaning LSU cannot fire Ed Orgeron without paying him $20 million. So Orgeron's salary this year is $3.5 million. In a five-year contract, folks, it's a five-year contract. First-year buyout is $12 million. His second-year buyout is $8.5 million. His third-year wow. buyout is $6 million. His fifth-year buyout is $4.5 million. But five years into his contract, they can fire Ed Orgeron and only owe a million dollars. This is on top of this is on top of the money they are still paying Les Miles, who was fired in September of last year, almost a year ago. Les Miles made four point three million a year, and the school owes Les Miles a buyout of more than nine million dollars. Folks, this is a football team that lost at home this weekend in primetime against Troy. And to make it worse To make it worse, they have the two highest-paid coordinators in college football in Dave Aranda and Matt Canada. They're paying those two coordinators, on top of Ed Orgeron and Les Miles, they're paying them $3.3 million a year as coordinators, folks. So LSU Athletic Director Joe Oliva, a big, big loser this week. Guys, we're out of time. Thanks so much, Buffalo Bad Boy. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Kip Kiefer. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Red Zone Sports Report. We'll be back same time next week, 830 on October 10th. Thanks for listening to us.